Weirdo Weirdo Bookworms Unite! Unite. Do your reading tastes range from dystopian sci-fi to middle-grade fantasy? Dark psychological thrillers to gory body horror? From YA paranormal swords and sorcery? Extraterrestrials? Murder? Mayhem! And beyond! Then we want to share our love of reading with you. Welcome home. Hi, genre junkies. It's Sandra. And this is Scott. Oh, it's horror night. It's always horror night in your mind. It is in my world. But um, today we have a horror book and not just any horror book. We have one of my most anticipated reads of the year, Just Like Mother from Anne Heltzel. And not only do we have a review of (laughs) Just Like Mother, we actually got to sit down and talk to Anne. And so look forward to that. It's always exciting when we get to talk to authors. And, you know, just like all the other authors we've talked to, Anne is a delight. Yes. Um, Speaking of a delight, too, uh, our friend, friend of the show, (laughs) well, someone we've had on the show before, but I'm going to call her a friend, Rachel Harrison, blurbed the front of this book. So as always, this part will be spoiler free. And the interview will come after that. And that'll be spoiler free. And then we'll have the spoiler section. Um, there are some kind of uh, very particular triggers. We, we kind of like to point out particular triggers. And what we do is we stick them at the top of the spoiler section. So if you want to know the triggers, you can know them, but it won't ruin the book for you. We'll tell you. Here we go. That's right. Always like to point that out for people because sometimes we don't remind people until like way late into the <laughs> yeah. into the non spoiler oh, section. Do a thing. Yeah, we plan and we do a thing. Yeah. Um, anything you would like to share with the class? Uh, uh well, we went karaokeing with the friends very recently. It was a great time. It was I... a belated birthday. Belated by like two years. Yeah, <laughs> we were planning a karaoke for my birthday back in 2020. And we all know how that went. <laughs> Didn't get to karaoke for a while. <laughs> so it was uh it was many years in the making. It was a lot of fun. Aww. I I it was it was a great time. Well, let's see, you know, I do the cult show, I do spooky slumber party. Um, if you haven't caught it, we did a review of Bold Fresh and X on Spooky Slumber Party. And those are two really fantastic horror movies. So I'd recommend checking that out. And then um, at the cult show, the episode this week, the week that this comes out, is going to be Friday. It's going to drop on YouTube um, in the evening. We do it live. And it's my pick. And it's whatever happened to Baby Jane. One of your very favorites. Yes, an absolute classic. So We're hoping that the others those. agree. Yeah, exactly. Okay, you want to hear about this? Uh, want to hear about this book and get cracking? Let's do it. <clears throat> and Heltzel just like mother. The last time Maeve saw her cousin was the night she escaped the cult in which they were raised. For the past two decades, Maeve has worked hard to build a normal life in New York City, where she keeps everything and everyone at a safe distance, no dwelling in the past. When Andrea suddenly reappears, Maeve regains the only true friend she's ever had. Soon she's spending more time at Andrea's remote Catskills estate than her own cramped apartment. Maeve doesn't even mind that her cousin's wealthy work friend disapprove of her single lifestyle. After all, Andrea has made her fortune in the fertility industry. Baby fever comes with the territory. The more Maeve immerses herself in Andrea's world, the more disconnected she feels from her own life back in the city, and the cousin's increasing attachment triggers memories Maeve has fought hard to bury. But confronting the terrors of her childhood may be the only way for Maeve to transcend the nightmare 
still to come. So, Sandra, why did this uh why did why was this one of your most anticipated books of the year? Oh, uh, well the premise alone, if there's a cult in it, I'm going to I'm going to want to read it. Mm-hmm. Cults is a favorite subgenre of mine. Um so that stuck out right away. This idea of motherhood stands out a lot to me as a very interesting theme to explore in horror. Um there's, it felt very girl power with the author and the theming and just all of it. So, and then not to mention the kick-ass cover, which has a baby doll head. <laughs> it has you written all over it. And I love the typeface. I mean, there was nothing about this this novel that didn't scream out to like, this is for you. For you, Damie. We did it all for you. <laughs> So I'm going to open up with my experience, and this was a huge page-turner for me. I devoured this book. I was enwrapped um, in the characters, in the setting. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really has a little bit of everything. It has horror. It has mystery. It has excitement. It has... Psychological. Yeah, it's really psychological. Um and it's kind of one of those stories where you as the reader are seeing these red flags but red flag red flag but you you understand why the character why why the main character of Maeve is not catching on to these things yes it's so fabulously written that you just want to see okay how how is Maeve going to figure out what's going on and how is Maeve going to get it get out of this how is this going to end i I totally get what you're saying because everything that's (laughs) that's a terrible red flag for us as the reader can be very easily explained away by logic or like by you know Maeve's emotions and her experience and her trauma and stuff so it's very very smartly done um it's just us who are freaking out like on her behalf um i found this book to be definitely a page turner it is written just where I hated, I hated putting down this book. As much as possible, I just wanted to be reading this and figuring out what was going to happen. But at the same time, when I got to the end, I was very sad and I immediately just wanted to reread it. So, so I'm, I'm glib over the excitement of this. And on the back, um, one of the notes from the publisher says, a modern gothic novel by a fresh new voice in horror. And I'm like, yeah, though. Yeah. Oh, that sentence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a little hard to talk about this book without spoilers. It really is because it's a combination of things. On the one hand, there's some things that I don't know that everyone would agree on is a spoiler or not. Mm, that's probably true. Um, because so much of what's happening is not expressly told to you, the reader, but is put but but all of the evidence is put down on the table <laughs> directly in front of you very early on uh, you know that said the main character Maeve doesn't actually figure things out at the same pace that you as the reader do well and you're also kind of like is this what i think it is or is this not what i think it is i i think what we can talk about in this non-spoiler section is kind of talk about the characters in in the way that they are informed as characters, starting with the very first chapter of the book, mm-hmm. which is, yes, Maeve grew up as a young child with her cousin, Andrea, in this cult. Um, I kinda, I love how you were kind of talking about the information we're given, because in some ways, 
you know, Maeve has the jump on us because she knows everything about this cult and it is very slowly unspun for us. Yes. So that's kind of cool because she knows stuff we don't know. We know stuff she doesn't know. And I, I don't even know if that's a deliberate thing and wrote, but it makes me feel like we're on the same level as Maeve. Mm-hmm. The whole plotting of this book is, in my opinion, genius. The way that it's... um. It's not dual timeline, but it's dual timeline. In a way, yeah. Um, I love that it's a twist on the gothic. You know, there's kind of like those little tropes in every genre. And for, for gothic books, it's usually a girl inherits a house. So it's kind of oh. like for this, it's like she doesn't inherit the house. But it, it's still set in that classic gothic house structure it's so hard to like say it without saying it but i'm trying to paint a picture mm-hmm. for my fellow horror people um i would also say i, I don't want to jump ahead to appeal but do it okay well really quickly because it kind of informs you know themes and stuff i want to talk about this to me is darn near mass appeal i'm not even going to say darn near i'm putting this firmly okay. in it well with us voting that way it ticks it over um there is a lot for a lot of people to take away from this book. I have already recommended it to a friend, our friend Jennifer Lee, um, who is not a horror person at all, but she's a great writer. And I was like, I think there's going to be something in this book that's going to be very inspiring for you. And And she liked the ideas of the theme of motherhood and women and, you know, what it means to be female. And and does that inherently supposed to mean mother? Yeah. I think women in general, whether you are a a mother or not, I think that there's going to be a lot of themes that is going to ring very uh, true <laughs> to yeah. you in this book. I think there's some experiences that a lot of us females really share that are called out in here. But it's not an, inc- I mean, it is a very, it's, it's, it's a feminist book, but it's not like a, a, a women and women first book, <laughs> right? Like here I am. I am I am a male. I am a cis male and I a lot of the themes of this book really resonated with me. I really found myself very attached and I related to the characters in this book, particularly mm-hmm. Maeve. Yeah. Um there's just a lot of humanity. Yes, I like that uh, humanity. There's um there's we've been talking about this on a few other genre junkies episodes but there's room for people to have struggles and problems and like mental health challenges and i'm very happy that we're living in a world right now where authors aren't shying away from that it makes the story so rich yeah um i think there's some stuff i specifically relate to as someone who's around the ages of the characters in this book and of and of Anne, we're pretty like all close in age we're kind of like between the two mm-hmm. <laughs> like in the book um as as a female in this this chapter of my life i relate to it and also as a child free person i relate to it and as somebody who loves kids but doesn't want them i even though Maeve doesn't like kids it, but, I can see so much of like I see this I I see this person's point I see that person's point, and even outside of that, um, which you know I definitely had a relation to- towards that as also a child free person, <laughs> but but there's another theme in this, and that is uh that is the the trauma of your childhood. Now I'm not comparing 
my trauma necessarily to Maves to it. Maves. Yeah. But we all carry uh, scars, baggage from our past, from yeah. our history, and there's a lot of things that we've left behind us: uh, friends, family, uh, cities, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, after you've healed from most of that, you still carry the scars, but then. If you're introduced to that again, if someone from your past suddenly re-enters your life, if you suddenly find yourself moving back to the town that you left, that's something that I think all of us can relate to. Yeah, something that calls you back to your past, um, whether it's traumatic or not, you then have to face a lot of things. Um, You have to face who you were. You have to face what the world was and the situation that you were in. And then in our story too, we see the effects of what happens when you have to bottle up and not have an outlet for like rehashing and and confronting your traumas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this book is just chock full of really solid human themes. And, you know, I, I have a tendency of getting oversold on books that you're really excited about. This one freaking delivered. Oh, really, really delivered. Oh, I'm so glad I, I had mentioned, I hadn't really seen you this excited about a horror book in a while. Um, Something else that bears mentioning is, damn, what a relevant time in American culture for this book to come out. I know. Every once in a while, we run into a book that was clearly written before, you know, everything hits the fan and comes out like, right before or yeah. right when it's the like that that exact moment in history where it becomes truly relevant yeah it you know almost like the author could see into the future i think Anne is a psychic is what you're saying exactly um for those of you who aren't aware uh the government's trying to control uh women's bodies yet again it's um it's such nonsense and it's infuriating um 50 of the population of the u.s i don't know if you knew this are just uteruses. Yeah, we're just uteruses. Um, we're just clumps of cells walking around. It's uh, it's it's no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's absolutely disgusting and disturbing what's happening in our country right now. And uh, it's, this book will really make you think about some of those issues. Um, I can't wait to go to the spoiler section. I think we're going to have to go soon. But I want to tell people, I sincerely loved this book. I cannot recommend it enough. I cannot recommend it to enough people to get it into their hands. If you're even vaguely curious about this, even if horror is not generally in your wheelhouse, I highly endorse it. Um, You know, I've said before about some of our our female horror authors, we need more and more and more female voices in horror in books and TV and film. Um, We need as most diversity and horror as humanly possible from from every walk of life and community because it only makes the horror richer and there's just times when as a as a female (laughs) who's so um obsessed and in love with this genre it makes me really excited when i find a new female horror voice um it's just like i just feel like group hug like welcome home i'm so glad you're here we need you yes get your politics out of my horror though (laughs) oh yeah because you know horror is never political doesn't have a history of that or anything we've said it before i horror is the best genre for getting a point across we're in sci-fi um did you have any final thoughts before we jump over please read this book 
we gave it a mass appeal score. That means if you are listening to this, you should be reading it. Why isn't it in your hands right now? 100%. And not only that, but uh, we think that you'll be recommending it to other people as well. So without further ado, with an extra special long interview because Anne was so gracious and stayed with us far longer than our time slot was. And we could have talked to her for hours. Hours and hours. You guys, she's so cool. You will want her to be your friend. And she is a kick-ass writer. And then catch up with us afterwards in the spoiler section. All right, everybody. So without further ado, please give a nice, warm genre junkies welcome to Anne Heltzel. Hello. Anne, come on down. Hi. So nice to be here. <laughs> thank <laughs> you. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. We are so, so happy to have you here because, okay, like in case you didn't know, I am the horror nut. Horror is my life's blood. And Scott likes horror. I dabble. That he dabbles, but it's not quite his thing. But I haven't seen him this excited about a horror book in a while. Oh, thank you. That's so nice. I want to know. I, <laughs> that's such a fun conversation, too. Like, how is how is it to have a dabbler and a fanatic um, <laughs> running this podcast and coexisting? Um, Scott sleeps with one eye open. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, well, my boyfriend, Andy, is a horror writer also. And ah! um, I think it's safe to say that uh, we're both equally terrified. So, you know. Nice. There's no danger. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure you have answered this question nigh on a million times but everybody always wants to know especially with the novel this this interesting what inspired you to write just like mother uh it's really very simple it was just me living my life in new york city and feeling very much alone um as a mid 30 something when pretty much everyone in my group not everyone but a, a good a good portion of my group um you know, we're either coupled or starting families. And I was honestly a little taken aback because I thought that <laughs> I wasn't taken aback. I mean, that's a strange thing to say when you have fair warning when people are planning families. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was just sort of a surreal experience where I had my whole life been sort of like, well, maybe maybe you'll have kids in five years maybe in five more years. And that timeline just never shifted. It was just always in, like this sort of distant but kind of close, but not too close for comfort future thing I might do. And, and in New York city too, there's like, there is this kind of Peter Pan culture and you think you always have more time. And, um, and then suddenly everyone was just doing this thing. And I, I felt like I'd missed the memo. I was <laughs> like, Oh, I thought, I thought we were all in, all in this, you know, feminist, Woman living art, which is not to say I'm going to interrupt myself there because all of my lovely friends with families are, are feminist, strong women who juggle a million things. Absolutely. But I just felt like there was some like step in the process that I had somehow missed that was very typical of um, growing up in the Midwest. But I thought I was sort of inoculated from in New York City. And I think it, it was just a matter of me not wanting to face the reality of, of the pressure being omnipresent. Um, the pressure meaning like you reach a certain point and especially as, um, a woman, you are sort of expected to have a family. And if you 
don't, um, you get a lot of a lot of feedback. I'll just <laughs> say that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. That, uh, so when are you having kids? Oh Question. Yes. Yeah, like people her. have asked us that forever. Yes. It's something definitely a lot of um, my coupled friends, or not a lot of, but I have coupled friends without children who face that. Also, it's like, I don't know. What if you just, I think it was, it was also very problematic that at that particular time, I didn't have a partner. Mm-hmm. And I almost think, even though I didn't touch on this in the book really so much, I almost think, I mean, I did a little bit, but that part is almost worse. It's its like there's something really wrong with you. Because if you have a partner, but you don't have kids, well, maybe there's a medical reason. There's always like an excuse someone can make for you. Um, you know, never just that you don't want to have them, but maybe there's like a reason where how you can, you can just explain it away. But if you're not um, part of a couple, there's like you're almost like an untouchable it's like (laughs) what it's yes and like dating even like if you're on dating apps people are like you seem great why haven't why are you single right now and and it's not it doesn't occur to people that maybe you just want to be single and at that period of my life I actually truly wanted to be single I was very happy I wasn't meeting anyone that I thought was like someone I wanted to bring into my life in a significant way um and honestly, like now I am partnered and, and we're talking about these things and, uh, you know, potentially having a family and I've, I still have the same ambivalence and the same fears. And I almost feel a little bit having written this book, a little bit like a sellout for having like found an awesome partner. Oh, no. even that language though, like found it's like, it's so <laughs> deeply ingrained among, like among all of us. Um, yes. So in writing the book, it wasn't meant to be like a judgment. It was definitely sort of this acknowledgement that I'm complicit in this, the structure that we've all established. So, yeah. Yeah. I appreciate, I think we both appreciate your openness and your vulnerability. So like, I am, it's very, very common feeling, I think, because Scott and I, we love kids. We love being auntie and uncle to our friends' kids. It gives us life. Neither of us have ever wanted children, just haven't. And I also have medical situations, too. Mm-hmm. So it makes it very awkward when people expect something from you or they want an answer from you. And you have to really be like, F- it, I don't owe you anything. Yeah, yeah. And there is also this thing of like, you sometimes do it for, or you feel like you need to do it for someone else, you know, whether it's like a grandparent or, or, or whatever, or just like having your kids in close proximity to your siblings, kids, so they can grow up with their cousins. I mean, I grew up with like all my cousins and it was the best thing ever. Yes. Yeah. But, and they're still, you know, some of the, my best friends and the people who are closest to me, but you just have, it's, there's a certain point where you just have to live your life and you can't default to something that someone else wants of you. Absolutely. And it's like, oh, cool. Getting married or, and, or having kids out of guilt. Well, that's a great reason. (laughs) I know. And here's, no, I think so many people it's, it's a bigger, it's like a lot of people don't know why they do it necessarily. And I think that's sort of what it's like. They may, people may not know they're doing it out of guilt or they may, think they're doing it for the right reasons. And of course, lots of people go into this. I would say probably the vast majority of people go into it thoughtfully, but there is, you know, mental health, for example, like it still carries somewhat of a stigma in certain parts of the world. And, and if you're not a person who's like very in touch with your feelings or used to analyzing or just, you know, used to understanding how you feel about something and identifying it, you're not necessarily going to know why you're doing every single thing you do. So it's like society is set up to rely on that to take advantage of it almost. Yes, we have a lot of these systems in place to keep keep the cogs moving. Exactly. 
And you can't blame, I mean, not every person is going to have the time, bandwidth, emotional energy, or just, you know, the fundamental resources in place to, to sit there and think like, is this a right emotional choice for me? Is this right for my life? Like, it just isn't realistic to think that way because everyone works differently. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's like, I, I'm totally with you. And like, cause that's at least the thing is like when you don't want kids, but it's like, I even just said it, but we love kids. Yeah. We think your kids are freaking awesome. Give us your children. We babysit for, for the low fee of filling up your fridge before you leave us alone with them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it, it is confusing because it's, it's usually a pretty nuanced decision. It's not like, it's not like, yeah, it's not, most people aren't like, well, I'm not having kids cause I hate them. And I think they're terrible. Some people, yeah, sure. But I mean, I have seven nieces and nephews who are awesome. I love hanging out with them. I wish I was closer. They're so just like really cool human beings. Um, and it, you know, they're, I, it, it's hard sometimes. Like you think if I do make this decision, which by the way, I'm 38, so time is waning. Um, but if I do, if I do make this decision, you know, it's, it's like, oh, well, the nieces and nephews are growing up. They won't have their cut. There's just so many factors at play and it's, it's so complex and, but I will say I feel extremely lucky to be in a place where I love my life either way. And that, that's, that's kind of the ideal. And I, I really just, I want people, I don't know. I, I hope that people have that, that thing to say, because it wasn't always that way for me, for sure. Uh, oh, hundred percent. I love that. A lot of this book is uh, a lot of the plot points in this book. They're not explicitly told to the reader and yet nothing is hidden. How do you balance, uh, how do you balance writing where the the reader is able to suss out exactly what's going on, where the main character is not privy to what's happening despite all of the red flags? That's a good question. I mean, honestly, I don't think I do it. I haven't mastered it, that's for sure. Um, disagree. Hard disagree. <laughs> Thank you. But going into the next book that I'm writing, I'm kind of like, how does, you know, is this what, is this the choice I want to make for this next book? And, and honestly, um, I don't know, like from a craft standpoint, it's, it's very difficult to go in the other direction. Um, sometimes like to really, I don't know. I, I don't believe in deceiving a reader and I know that it can be extremely rewarding. Like there, there are points that could have been more subtle and some that could have been less subtle, but there was a specific, um, sort of juncture in writing this or in revising this book where, um, I had a conversation about this, this, uh, you know, craft issue with my agent. Um, her name is Elizabeth Weed. She's awesome. I am very grateful for her. She's extremely smart and extremely, um, just great at brainstorming. Um, so we were talking and, and she was like, you know, this, this one element is, I just want it to be less predictable. I feel like it's, you know, it needs to be more hidden. And I, I bumped up against that a little bit. And I took like 99.9% of Elizabeth's guidance cause she's awesome. But that particular thing I thought, Honestly, like, I don't think there's any possible way of, of, of concealing this particular reveal. And, um, and I was like, and, and the reason for that is that is it's sort of set up to be that and to, to hide it would mean to change the entire backstory or to make it a much more elaborate backstory. And that was just something that didn't feel organic to the book to me. So my aim in, in doing that and, and not necessarily concealing that particular thing was, um, was purely to make the journey of getting there really fun. So, so it was sort of like, you know, it's, it's not the destination, it's the journey. <laughs> and the idea was just like, even if people know what's going to happen, I want to make the getting there 
fun and hopefully a little bit unexpected. And I also didn't really want the narrator to be unreliable. So I didn't want, I didn't want Maeve to hide knowledge from the reader. I, I've done that in other, in like my YA books and I don't love it. And I think it's, it's also, especially when it comes to mental fragility, it's a trope that I'm not interested in exploring. I wanted, I wanted her to be reliable. I wanted her not to know more than the reader knows. Um, because I didn't want it to seem as though it was fully reliant on, on like some mental illness stereotypes or, you know, kind of like anti-feminist st- stereotypes. If that makes oh, That's a good point. Yeah. There's a certain level of, uh, I would say, Hitchcockness to that kind of approach. Hitchcockian, yes. Uh, to that approach where you as the reader have sussed out without being explicitly told what's, what's happening, um, but completely can understand why the main character hasn't caught on yet. Another big element of that um, that I, I hope works and is it's reliant on on the sense that you know Maeve is a person who experienced a significant amount of trauma and so her experience of reality and of um like her the way she relates to people and whether or not she trusts people and the decisions she makes are clouded by that for sure um so that's a part of it too like there are things that Maeve decides that probably a a person with a healthier sense of self or from like a loving and stable background would maybe not have chosen. Yeah, that makes total sense for for a beautiful, complex, nuanced character who, you know, just like us, just like us real life folks, <laughs> the real world. Well, and for the record, um, I I love your writing and you can deceive me anytime and I won't be upset about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. See what I um, the next one. <laughs> so there's definitely some horror movies that come to mind when we think about just like mother but i would like to know what are some of your favorite horror movies well i have a very strong recent favorite oh there's so many movies now i love horror movies so much um i just so happy that my my boyfriend like also loves horror movies because for a very long time i had a roommate in new york as as one does in new york and um and my roommate was terrified of everything. Like we, we'd be watching Stranger Things, and he'd be like, um, "Is this going to be too scary for me?" And I'd be like, "No, this isn't even scary." So, so anyway, finally, last couple of years, I've been able to truly indulge my late night TV habits. And um, um, I don't know if you guys saw the movie Fresh on Hulu. Oh heck yes! I reviewed it on my other horror movie podcast, Spooky Summer Party. Yep, obsessed with that movie. It's yes. so good. It's uh, it's just so fun, so smart and sharp and so weird. And yes. but but like true, like a very true depiction of um, dating. I think in like especially in big cities on dating apps. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it I love that, and I love that it like reflected sort of a specific moment in our time culturally. And um, it was it's just awesome. And I looked into like the writer and director, and they're you know women my age and I just feel like we're all kind of in this together <laughs> so totally I, I appreciated that um and then I you know I recently saw X and really liked oh, that reviewed that one as well hell, hell yes right. fabulous movie I'm dying to see Uma haven't seen it yet but I just because it, sh- it seems like it might share some themes but like in a very different way um some themes to my book I mean but like oh yeah it looks really interesting haven't haven't seen it yet but on my list. Um, let me think back to, now I need to think back to more classics. I mean, obviously get out, like, you know, mm. it's, it's such a clear 
cultural touchstone. I think that movie really opened the door for a different, like for, for a new type of horror. Um, agree, which, you know, absolutely influenced my decision to write this book to, you know, knowing that that door was open, uh, for this type of thing. Um, you know, not, not the same type of thing, obviously, but sort of like contemporary societal issues, issue horror. That's, that's a, I don't know if I like that or not. Um, I agree. No, I like issue horror. I'm thinking of The Lodge. I'm thinking of Hereditary. Uh, yeah, Hereditary. I have to say, so I'm I'm probably in the minority here. I I wanted Hereditary to be scarier. Like, oh oh, shots fired. I hot take. Really like Hereditary, but I I felt that here. I think they put the scariest moments in the trailer. So ah uh, yeah yeah that happens. Yeah, and I was like, man, like. I w- the trailer was so perfect and it gave me chills and I was waiting for sort of like more of that in in the film and it I think they just hit the scariest moments there and that was the bummer my my favorite horror movie of all time movie of all time is Rosemary's Baby and I bet a lot of people bring that up in relation to Just Like Mother they do and yeah I it, you know here I didn't have that movie in mind when I started writing the book. But then at some point in the writing process, it was sort of inescapable. I was like, Oh, (laughs) this, you know, and I would say it was actually, I think I might've been at that point pitching agents. Cause I had had, I had published some children's, you know, YA books and, and I had had, um, an agent who primarily specializes in children's lit. And, uh, I, I sort of wanted, um, first started. So I was pitching agents and, and, uh, I was trying to think of how to pitch and there's this sort of like common convention, um, that you're probably aware of. That's like X meets Y. So it's like, you know, you take typically something, it's, it's usually just like touchstones that they're either, um, you know, fiction or film that people are very familiar with. So in one succinct sentence, the person reading will know exactly what it is. So, I pitched it as, I believe, The Haunting of Hill House meets Rosemary's Baby. And that was like when I was thinking about how to pitch it, that was what, like, it became very clear that Rosemary's Baby was, you know, very closely aligned in theme. Um, But I didn't start out writing it with Rosemary's Baby in mind. It was just like, oh, duh. You know, it was one of those things. It's great, yeah, to have like something to be like, if you like this, try this. (laughs) Exactly. And it's, and having a mashup is, you know, you just really, you see it all the time in, in the book industry, right? Like if you look at, um, publishers marketplace or like deals that are announced very frequently, they have that format. Um, and it, it's interesting there, there right after get out came out, there were a ton of like get out meets, whatever. Yes. Like get out meets the office or whatever. (laughs) 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 I mean, that might've been, I'm trying to think how the other black girl was, was pitched and it was, it was, Oh yeah. It was like, no, it wasn't The Office, though. It was like Get Out Meets, classic office space film and it, that I cannot place at the moment. But um, yeah. I remember when that was announced and thinking, oh, I know exactly what that is. That's so cool. So. Yeah. yeah. So you are an editor as well, correct? I am. I, I want to hear about your creative process in writing a book, because we've talked to other authors in the past who have talked about um, their own brain trying to edit their own work being a detriment to them. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you bring your editing experience into your writing to your, to your writing process? So I it's I feel like it's actually for me extremely different parts of the brain like it when I'm writing it feels like playing make-believe it feels like when you're a kid and you're you know 
playing for hours outside and you have this like whole narrative to what you're doing. There's like wizards and horses and it's like ongoing and you play the same made up game for weeks and weeks and weeks. And that's, that's kind of what it feels like to me to write. It It is its own brain space. And often, honestly, I don't even remember what I've just written. It's, it's actually really creepy. It's like, Ooh, possession. It's possession. Yeah. It's well, it's like dreaming almost. It's in the sense that you are just, everything else is totally shut off and it sort of unravels. That's, that's when I'm in the best parts of writing though. That's obviously not the whole process. That would be too magical, but, um, I don't know. I mean that part. And, and then when I'm editing, it's, it's so different. It's, I have a, an extremely critical mindset that, um, I ask, I ask questions of almost every line I try to read. Um, I try to read just for structure and enjoyment at first to sort of get a sense of where things it's almost, it feels like a color graph when I'm editing. I know that that's odd, but it's, or not a color graph. It's more like a black and white graph with spaces. And so there are like spaces that are meatier and spaces that are emptier. And then I sort of approach it where like you have to fill them in. Or if there's a jagged line, it's like something doesn't completely add up. And I actually think now that I'm thinking about it, it's I'm a pretty visually oriented person. So with my own writing, there's also um, this this thing like kind of playing out behind like just a scene usually that I, I then just sort of transcribe. But um, but I can shut off the critical part of my brain. Um, which is good, but not good because then at the very end, I, I almost have to see it. Like when I was <laughs> revising just like mother, I, I think Kelly, my editor at night fire probably wanted to kill me because <laughs> I didn't see editorially the things that I wanted, like this, the minor things I wanted to change until it was in, um, first pass, which means like it's already been designed and laid out in a PDF. And that was actually the pass that went to the advanced copies. And then after that went out, I made almost 500 changes. So, oh my gosh. I know. And I feel, I feel bad, but I think it was something about the way it was laid out and it looked like a book I was editing at that point. And it just visually shifted. And, and I like looked at it more critically and went through and just made, it was something I could not see during copy edits in a Microsoft Word doc. I don't know how to describe it. I genuinely couldn't see it. And I, it's weird. It's like now I, I don't feel capable of getting there until it's fully laid out and designed. But, um, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I just have like a very clear sense when I'm editing of what needs to be done and how to sort of dismantle something and put it back together and, and make it all make sense. And when things don't make logical sense, um, I ask just a lot of questions um, and I'll, you know, just point things out and, and say, but like, what did you mean by this? And but you said this here. And why? Wh how could this happen if this and this doesn't seem right for that character? And oh, what if this thing happened here? I, I don't know. It's just a whole different thing. And it's got to be useful in some way on a subconscious level, but it doesn't really come into play. Um, but but what I do think is extraordinarily helpful having been an editor who specifically focuses on content development, um, meaning like I help build stories a lot for uh, IP projects and books that are tied into brands and things like that. I do have a sense of sort of like mechanics of plot and structure. And it's certainly not perfect. And, and honestly, like my agent is ruthless. Like she, every time I give her a draft, she cut like 10,000 words <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be like, fine, it can all go. And I would just accept it all. Um, but then I'd like replace it with 20,000 more words and then she'd cut more. And, uh, <laughs> but it, I don't know. I, I tend to have a good sense of, of those, you know, just like structural components, just having done it for so many years. So that's been extremely helpful. Um, I don't plot out something in full in advance, but I do have a really strong sense of what I'm trying to do. And that helps sort of like drive character motives and like build tension. Cause I know what generally speaking, I know what the end point is going to be. So what is your favorite step of the writing process? Ooh. Um, 
I actually really like revision. There's something like, because there's a lot of pressure in getting that initial draft out. Um, and it's scary. And because you don't know every element of it, it's, it's sort of to a degree unmapped. And that part frightens me. Um, and it feels like, what if I can't do it? Like, what if I can't do it this time? Um, but then, you know, the revision process, you you already have someone who's read it, who has hopefully told you they like it, who has a lot of awesome advice <laughs> that you can, if someone else is like giving you a map for what to do and the pressure's off of you a little bit, you know? And um, when I revise, I, I always feel like I'm not doing a lot, but then I look back and it's like tons of stuff is changed. I just love, I love the like pulling it apart. Like it's a, a little, I don't know, like a little clay sculpture and then piecing it back together. It's fun. Oh, I love that. I love that <laughs> visual. Um, so here I am back again with the horror recommendation. Um, I would love to hear, uh, we love when our authors share with our readers some books that they've been loving. So what's some, either your favorite books or recent reads, horror or non, that you'd like to share with our listeners? Ooh, let me, do you mind if I just take you into my bedroom and look at some books? Please, let's go. These no. specific questions are always elude me somehow. Um, well, yeah, you should you should describe your writing space while you're there. <laughs> Paint a picture. <laughs> oh, well, my office is painted arsenic green, and that is a new thing. I love it. It's like, <gasps> the kind of green that they used to use back in the day that actually had arsenic in it and was poison. <gasps> I love it. And, oh my God, yes. And then I have, it's, I, I mean, I really like my office. I feel very very pleased with myself. Um, <laughs> I just did this like two weeks ago. That's why. Um, I have a lot of art that I stole from my parents' basement. That was, it had belonged to my grandmother by stole. Obviously I just mean they gave yeah. it. Um, <laughs> it was stuff that, be, that was in my grandparents' house growing up. And it's funny because like, it's just this collection of, of old stuff that probably wouldn't, it would look sort of stuffy anywhere else or like, you know, it would look a little too formal, but against the arsenic green, um, this is me nerding out over design stuff. Um, oh. it looks really fun. It like, Ooh. it just looks cool. And then there's this sketch that is of my late dog who passed away. Um, I commissioned an outlandish portrait of him, um, which I, <laughs> I didn't know it was, I didn't, I honestly didn't know what I was getting myself into. And then I was in, in too deep, but I love it. Um, so then, okay, here we are at my, in my, in my lair. Um, <laughs> Your lair sounds amazing. Um, I'm reading right now Her Body and Other Parties, which I had read other Carmen Mikado stuff, but mm -hmm. this is so good. Um, yes. I'm loving that. I'm also, it's a new classic. Yes, it's incredible. I always have like, I don't know, like eight books going at once just because... I'm a little ADD. Um, I, I usually read multiple books at once, too. I cannot yeah. do that. I can't get on board with y'all. You know, neither can Andy, my boyfriend. I keep mentioning him because he's also a horror writer, so I feel like it's relevant. Um, yes. <laughs> he he had a book out in the fall um, called The Seven Visitations of Sidney Burgess. I always read his stuff. That's actually how we um, reconnected. We've known each other for a long time, but he hired me to freelance edit his book, and then we reconnected and got together. Oh, <laughs> and then he has another horror novel coming out in the fall called it rides a pale horse, which is awesome. But anyway, Ooh, yeah, yeah. His stuff is great. So I always read that. I'm always reading for work. So I don't have as much time to read for pleasure as I'd like, but I'm reading Catherine house right now. I have been wanting to read it forever and it is very good. It's by Elizabeth Thomas. Ugh, so atmospheric. Um, and then, oh, I have a Patricia Highsmith biography here that, mm. like, is fascinating. Uh, but nonfiction, I kind of dip in and out, so I haven't, you know, read the whole thing. And then, 
In terms of books that, uh, well, for thrillers, because I do read a lot of thrillers, I liked The Push a lot, and I read that. <gasps> I was we cool. got to interview Audrey, and we love that book. It's really well done. I, I loved it. I read it in like a day. Um, oh, I love Sally Rooney's books, <laughs> me and everyone else. Um, yeah. <laughs> I loved, one of my favorite books of all time is A Fine Balance. Um, by Rohinton Mystery. It's excellent, excellent, excellent. It's like, it's literary fiction. One, I think a booker set in India, devastating, beautiful. Um, now what else? Man, I had one on the tip of my tongue. Well, while you're thinking of that, I'll take the liberty um, of of uh, plugging. That's Andy Marino, correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. He is love it. Great. Love it. Love it. Talk about some, our creative processes are vastly different. It's It's funny. Um, <laughs> paper for sci-fi, um, the book of strange new things. And I don't usually read sci-fi, but I really enjoyed that. Um, we'll just stop there because there are just too many. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> my, my wheelhouse. So that just went right on my list. Science fiction. Yeah. Actually. Well, that's a cute question. If you don't mind answering it because you know, like Scott and I are, are a couple as well. So what's it like, um, you know, being coupled with another creative, another horror writer. What What's that like? Um, I told myself I would never date another writer. So <laughs> I'm a little shocked, but it works really, really well. And I think that's mostly because Andy is virtually egoless. <laughs> so he's, he's just really supportive and wonderful. And he is extreme. I've never met anyone more dedicated to his career. Like if he, he would be thrilled if he could just every day, just go into a room with a chair and write all day. Like he doesn't need anything other than writing. Like he's so, he just loves it and really revels in it and is very, very creative. And, but when we, you know, when we talk about careers, it, we were actually on submission at the same time. And I was, that was a little stressful. Cause I was, I don't know. It was just like, what if one of our books doesn't sell? What if, like, how will that be? Just because it was happening yeah. spontaneously. And luckily, um, that was not the case. Both of our books sold, but on very different timelines. And mine actually sold first. And he was so supportive and lovely. Aww. And I, Aww. like, I don't know if I would be as, I can't, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would be mature enough to be as gracious as he was during that time. Fair, fair. But he, yeah, we, we because we do have such different styles and, and different, um, ways of approaching the craft, we are able to really support each other. So he, you know, he reads all my stuff. I read all his, I tend to impose more structure onto his, like, I definitely read like an editor when I'm like edit his stuff and, and I'll, I'll say like, what does this mean? And, and, you know, you need more of a plot. He's very freewheeling. Um, we talk about plot a lot. And then with his stuff, he is just so lyrical and imaginative and, um, you know, he'll, he'll like we'll dissect all the themes of my work and he'll also like kind of line by line pinpoint if something feels awkward things like he's great at the prose um and he's just yeah he's just extremely imaginative it's fun it's really fun it's something we can enjoy and i hope this is you know who knows i hope it's this way forever but it doesn't feel competitive it feels very supportive both of like we just like it it's fun that is so rad. That is so rad. And I'll and we'll make sure when we have him on in the future one day, we'll have him spend half of his interview talking about you. Oh, oh don't worry. Yeah, it shall be equal. I'll just put this in, in the tally of things he owes me. Now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I love it. Um, I have another kind of fun question. Mm-hmm. As a horror writer, as a horror aficionado, what scares you? What makes you think? 
that a book or a concept or, you know, is scary. Like for me, I'm super afraid of cults and clowns. <laughs> um, so you'd be, can I, not to talk about Andy even more, but <laughs> his, his dad is a, is an artist and he has clown illustrations that are oh, no. hanging up in their, in Andy's childhood home. And Nope. You know, his dad is extremely talented, but it is disarming. Like you walk in and there's yeah. a couple of clowns and I mean, they're very well rendered, but if you're not a clown person, <laughs> I think you'd be freaked out is what I'm trying to Yeah. Say. I think I would just like open the door and just like silently turn around. <laughs> yeah, it's like, nope, not for nope, me. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> um, yeah. I have a few things. Um, I don't know why, but for some reason, like large bodies of water that are very deep freak me out. And actually it's, it's complicated because I love, I love water. Also. I love, I know it's, it's very, it's I love hate, love hate. Yeah. Weird because I love, I like love lakes and ponds. I like, you know, seeing water and doing things in water, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but then I have nightmares all the time about, um, like dolphin tanks. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> like, uh, like, like Sea World style, um, and and often being caught in and not being able to climb out, and then just having it be very deep. And I think it's it's the depth that actually just gave me chills. Um, and recently, I stumbled across an Instagram ad for the world's deepest pool in Dubai, and it is so scary. It's <gasps> it's for scuba diving, and they fashioned it um, after a sunken city, and it is the scariest thing. Ooh, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I I wouldn't mind it if he wrote a book about people being trapped in a dolphin tank. I'd read that. That I thought <laughs> about it, but that sounds kind of fun. <laughs> well, it'd also be very sad for the dolphins, so it's its own kind of horror, isn't it? Oh no. I don't I, I'll have to wrap my head around that one. Uh I also like growing up I was terrified of spiders and I've I've gotten a little bit better about that, but um, I had a horrible encounter with a wolf spider as a young child at the local swimming pool. <gasps> it was in the bathroom. And um, I assume that's what kicked off the fear. But since then, like, I can't, I can't handle spiders. Like in college, one of my best friends had to come over at three in the morning to kill a spider in my room. <laughs> with, like a little melodramatic now that I look back, but um, my brother like still sends me anything related to terrifying. There was like, there were spiders coming out of the sky somewhere in the Northeast recently. It was <laughs> North than I am, but he sent me, of course, was happy to send me that. <laughs> so Yes. I, I have a, I myself have a complicated relationship with spiders. I, I really respect the heck out of them. I used to be very afraid of them. And now I'm like, let's catch and release the spider. Yeah. They're, you know, they're friendly. They're our friends. Mostly. They're our friends. Yes. Except for the poisonous ones. Um, <laughs> But um, Arachnophobia was probably the first horror movie that really scared the crap out of me. Ah, yes. Ugh. Oh, when it comes out of her nose. When there were, oh. <laughs> Classic. Classic. This is going to be a marathon interview, and I love it. Because we just keep having questions we want to talk to you about, because you're awesome. We like you. So what is the first story you remember writing? Hmm. The story that makes me look really bad, or the one that... Okay, I'll just tell you the, the one that makes me look really bad, which is the actual answer. Um, when I was in the first grade, I didn't know, obviously, what plagiarism was. Um, of course. Life. Um, but I was reading a lot. <laughs> I, I was an early reader, so I was reading, I was reading like novels at a young age. And um, 
in the first grade, we had to write a story. And what I did was I took the first paragraph of the novel I was reading. And I just wrote it down. <laughs> nice, and, nice. And it was, um, it was a, I remember my mom saying, can you go get, you know, what are you reading right now? And can you go get your book from your backpack? And cause my teacher obviously knew this wasn't my writing and, and like told my parents and then, you know, I got my book from the backpack from my backpack. I didn't really know what I'd done wrong, but my mom was like, okay, like you're not allowed to copy someone else's. <laughs> so embarrassing. <laughs> anyway, that was my first lesson in plagiarism. But um, a story. I think, I think that's common. I feel like a lot of kids do that. They get an idea from something or they copy it out. Right. I, I hope you don't feel shame over that because that's adorable. <laughs> no. Oh, I mean, because I mean, I truly didn't know. And I remember being like pretty embarrassed. Oh, so then my mom was like, now you have to write a real story. And it was like about a bunny or something. Oh, lovely. <laughs> but we went from being like about a teen. I don't know what the teen was doing, but it was like, you know, it was probably like um, Cynthia Voigt. Maybe not that because I don't think I was reading Cynthia Voigt in the first grade. But uh, <laughs> it went from being something like that to being like about a bunny. <laughs> like You're like, fine, I'll write about your pedestrian rabbit if I must. Well, it's like, wow, talk about aspirational. <laughs> like I, I love it. But um, I don't know, like a real story. I really, in earnest, started writing in college. I did write for fun throughout my childhood. Um, but in, And I always tried to put a creative spin on any academic paper. I would always lead any essay with an anecdote or a, a creative scenario. So I always knew I liked creative writing and then only really started doing fiction writing um, in college. That's actually very cool. And and I want to, I want to jump on what Sandra said. I mean, you said first grade, six years old. Yeah. It's, it's called practice. It's called, you know, yes. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we don't read a lot of fan fiction, but, um, you know, it's a kind of same thing with like fan fiction and stuff like that. Like valid, just because something has already been created for you doesn't mean that it's a bad thing to get yourself out there and learn Inspired. what it feels like to put pen to paper. Yeah. Or, you know, fingers to keys or how, however. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that because I hadn't realized I do actually feel really embarrassed about that. So no! I don't, don't know that one much. No, it's actually, it's adorable and it doesn't come off as bad or embarrassing at all. It comes off as very cute and ambitious. Well, thank you. That's nice of you to say. I don't want to get you in any trouble, but can you talk to us about any future works you have coming up that you're writing? I can. I will say it's been a difficult writing process, like you know, with with um, commitments leading up to publication of just like mother as well as my day job. It's been really hard to balance. So I'm a little bit behind schedule, but I'm writing. Um, I have another book under contract with Tor Nightfire. I feel so lucky to be with them. They're Tor rocks. They're so great. Um, very very lucky. It, it centers around the theme of of aging, and Ooh. there are three separate points of view and um it's intergenerational and a lot of it is sort of um sort of like a growing awareness of again nothing groundbreaking here but just something that I'm sorry knows more in my own life the way we treat older people in this country <laughs> yes there's a lot of horror right there yeah there's so much horror it's it's like it's just so perfect for diving into characters of different ages and what is scary about it like both physicality, um, like, you know, as a woman losing your youth and beauty, um, as an older person feeling irrelevant, the idea that we like, we talk to older people, like their children, like the, you know, infantilizing them, um, 
worrying about security and health after a certain point because, you know, kind of age out of your job market or whatever it is. And, and all of those themes that have been sort of swirling in my head for the past couple of years. Um, so I don't want to get into plot too much, but that's what it's, it covers. And I, my, my working title is ripe old fruit, but I don't know if we'll change that or not. Ooh. I like that. I like that. Well, I think we're very excited for that next book. And we have to tell you, Anne, um, we, we are very, very excited about this episode to discuss this book and having you on the show just really enriched it for us. So thank you for being here. This has been really fun. I enjoyed it a lot. And so, and for our listeners who want to follow you and find out when that next book comes out, what is the best place for our listeners to, uh, to follow you? Well, I'm on, um, Instagram and Twitter, but I'm much more active on Instagram. So that's probably the best if you have to pick one. All right. <laughs> and you also have a website as well. So, I, so yes, I'm also on Facebook, but it, I am very rarely on Facebook. That's sort of Facebook. Bleh. Yeah. No. Same with Twitter, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Lame. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, great. Anne is easy to find. So get out there and find her. And I know everybody has read this book and we can't wait to hear what you all think. But Anne, thank you again for being here and for writing this fabulous novel. Thank you so much. This was a, really a treat. Hey, Bookworm Buddy, don't forget, subscribe, rate and review. And while you're at it, find us on Instagram at Genre Junkies. Oh, my goodness. Like I said, we could have talked to her forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. She is lovely. In a, in another alternate dimension, we are still talking to her at this very moment. I want to jump onto that um, that variant right there. Okay. So, as promised, let's get these um, triggers addressed. So, there's talk in this book of um, suicidal ideation and attempts there is uh abortion adoption are all addressed in this book violence towards children not related to the prior two <laughs> not really <laughs> <laughs> i feel like it's important that i point that out um sexual assault as well yeah i would say that this book takes some deep dives into a lot of concerns and troubling challenges that women have to face yes Okay, here we go. Spoilers. Spoilers ahoy! <laughs> Man the cannons. We're going into the spoiler section. All right. So I think all of us who read this book realized that there was there was nothing good about Andrea. No, but I get her. I get her and I, I get why Maeve was loyal and attached to her and Andrea's this master manipulator, man. Oh she, yeah. She's been manipulating her cousin since the day they were born. And she knows exactly how to push her buttons, to turn on her guilt, to turn on her heartstrings. It's a masterful. It's particularly uh evil, however, because you know, Cult leaders, that's what they're all about is finding people at yes. their at their right lowest time. points yep. and at the right time. But Andrea is also creating though that point. She is building everything right. around Maeve's life. Right. Where all right, she's gonna lose her job, she's gonna lose her boyfriend, she's she's gonna lose yeah. her home, everything. And and that makes it even more insidious. Oh, absolutely. Um, and you know that's how she's gathered the women she does have in the cult is she's she's honing in on something right away. Fertility, 
motherhood. Um, there is a strong, strong cultural current in our in our culture and in a lot of other places the world over for women to be mothers. And there's a lot of folks out there who feel that they their life is incomplete until they have children, but not in a way like it's happy and fulfilling for mm -hmm. them, but like they're losing it life. If you're not married, have the kids, have the house. And I want to preface because I'm going to say some things uh, in talking about this that I don't want to sound insensitive. I think that parents, mothers are fantastic. You guys rock. We need to have a human race. Um, we could probably cut back a little bit, but <laughs> a little crowded. But no, I, I think it is an inc people who are able to be parents to children. It's something I could never do. Just right. I, I I couldn't. I, I I genuinely couldn't. I don't want to take anything away from 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 all you parents out there. Right. And there's a lot of reasons, great reasons why people don't want to be parents, and there's a lot of great reasons why people do. That said, you know, there is kind of a culture that is put on it, particularly us in America. I don't want to speak outside of outside of uh, you know, our own experience, uh, but it is almost cultish. This yes, this uh, idealization of motherhood, of parenthood. How many times have so many of us been asked, "When are you having kids?" Or how about for some of you that have kids, when are you going to have another one? Mm -hmm. And oh, you're just glowing and oh you know you're not complete until you have a child right your body has to be perfect before you have a baby to be the perfect baby vessel and then immediately get out of your Ugh. postpartum body oh that just made my stomach turn <laughs> when you said it like that well how do you think we all feel i know and then you have to get back to that you know body immediately there is so much on our bodies as females it is insane and i'm not saying that other genders don't have that experience but it's like i mean look at in the news with with roe versus wade and everything our bodies are this hugely talked about thing they're sexual but they're also you know supposed to be these pure vessels of life it is so confusing yeah <laughs> So you can't blame people, or especially femme folks, for having a lot of hangups about what their body's supposed to be doing. I mean, I know we know people who um, uh, who have felt guilted into having children. Now, I would say that the people that we know are still happy that they did it. I'm not. Gonna, and it's more of it's gonna, that they're the minority. Yeah, but they, you know, they felt they felt you know, kind of societally guilted by doing pressure. It. And we know people who chose to not have children who still feel like, well, did they miss something? Yeah. And that's sad. That's sad. It is. And gosh, it's like, obviously, this is a subject that we are very passionate about. And we spent a lot of time learning about, you know, kind of child free. It's, a, it's kind of a movement, really. And I think you and I both just always knew what we wanted. But um, it's, it's a very popular topic right now to discuss, you know, why aren't millennials interested in having children or, or whatever? And for so many people, it's it's practical too. Like you notice the folks in our book, we have Maeve who's living paycheck to paycheck. And then we have the super elites. Yeah. And um, 
that brings up an interesting question too of like, they have all this money. They have all so much money. And so then just the wealthiest people are having children? You know, like, does that feel right? No. <laughs> That's not how we make a middle class. <laughs> yeah, that feels weird. Um, I, I want to talk about I want to talk about that that um that that guilt that pressure though, um because this book handles uh that decision and you know the, and it's also just an allegory for uh scars of trauma and you know self development and regression in general. When Andrea asks Maeve uh, or tries to coerce Maeve into uh, donating her eggs so that Andrea can have her own child, basically. Right. That's a great scene. It is a great scene. And Maeve definitely has a emotional reason that not necessarily to be put into words, but her answer is, no, I don't want there I don't want to have a child in this world that came from her. Doesn't need any more reason than that. And she doesn't give one. And it's not handled in a way that is that is like, I can't really explain why I can't. It's just like, no, I just don't It makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And that is a that is a mature yeah. and and totally acceptable answer. Um and over time, Andrea kind of starts, you know picking at these scars right and picking at her her sense of self where now she starts to question well i guess i don't have a specific reason and words on why i wouldn't right. maybe it wouldn't be so bad and to be clear if Maeve chose her mind and decided to have kids after she didn't want kids that's totally fine but the reason why she's questioning herself is it's because what's of manipulation so, it's because of manipulation and it's because of that well if I can't put into words exactly like you don't have to you don't have to have a reason to yeah. not or not want to do something or want to do something for that matter you don't have to be able to defend yourself in your own decisions but what Andrea does is you know, amongst other things, basically puts into Maeve's head that, well, if you don't have a reason, you're just being selfish. Oh, absolutely. She, like I said, she's like at this giant control board and she has a master plan for how to manipulate everybody. And obviously Maeve's going to be the one that's like her magnum opus of people she is because she doesn't want to talk about the past with her. She brings it up just enough to make Maeve feel guilty for what she did. You broke up the family, but I'm not want to talk about it with you. I mean, that's so like, like hot, cold hot, cold, and just controls the narrative of their history together, which is so creepy. And so when Andrea first comes to her and wants her eggs, she's um, desperate. It's frankly embarrassing. It's like secondhand embarrassment. Mm -hmm. She's so just desperate for this. And it's this huge, huge, huge deal, right, to her motherhood. It, she's it, the cult of mother. She's she's so bought in. But then at the same time, she tries to make it sound so easy for her cousin to just give away her eggs. Yeah. And it's like, well, which one is it, Andrea? Do you like, is it easy peasy and she should just do it? Or is this the most crucial thing in the world? Well, it's, it's nothing to her because it's just her eggs and she did, and she owes her. She owes her her body? It's crazy. No, I'm I'm saying like we I it's it's crazy brilliant how Anne wrote it. Oh yeah, for sure. And you know, there okay, 
there's 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 uh there's such a fine delicate tightrope balance in this book of we all know that Andrea is incredibly malicious and is definitely using her power and money to control the situation to get exactly what she wants. Right. And it's obvious from the text of the book, but not in a way where, you know, you're screaming at Maeve, why can't you see what's going on? Absolutely. And that is such a hard, hard type, hard, hard line to walk because, you know, you just go a little bit more obvious and you go, well, why didn't Maeve see what was going on? Or you go a little bit less obvious and, you know, you as the reader don't necessarily know if this is malicious or not. She gets right to the edge of that cliff. Where you're questioning everything. You're questioning is, does Andrea, Andrea, does Andrea have a sliver of good or no, absolutely. It's, you know what it is? And this is what I love. This is a theme I love in horror. We've brought this up before. I love paranoia and conspiracy. Mm -hmm. I love (laughs) that's a delicious cocktail amuse-bouche to me like i it it tastes so good going down in a horror and even at the point like i i mean i knew very early on that andrea was was a malicious actor but i didn't think from the beginning that okay she's the mother superior of the cult no i didn't think that like the cult would be where it is and how it developed and how far along it is i didn't i didn't realize i you know and maybe Right away, I didn't even think that she was going to be recreating the cult. I yeah. thought that she was going to have her own scars from the cult. Um, but by the time it is revealed that she's the mother superior, we as readers, I as a reader, I knew. It's like, oh, she's she's recreating this cult or she's still part of this cult. Yes. And I mean, it did come as a huge surprise that it is this international uh, just... Right below the surface, this thing is going on. And ha- and the wheels have been turning for decades. And it's like, Maeve, Maeve, you're just a silly pawn in this game. Um, one great example of Anne's storytelling is the character of Emily. Because yeah. Emily is a great proxy. She's a great way for us to learn about things. She's somewhere between our two characters of Maeve and Andrea. Um, and because... She's not the manipulator Andrea is and doesn't need, you know, certain things from her. She has the audacity to say some of the stuff to Maeve that just makes you cringe. Yeah. I mean, she's saying, you're exactly right. She's saying the stuff that Andrea thinks. Right. But Andrea is too... um, too crafty to say yeah because she's working towards an ultimate goal whereas emily has been so uh brainwashed into this this cult that she is a a you know at that point a true believer yes and she can't even imagine someone who doesn't think like her well it's because yeah but but right under the surface of emily she's dying to get out yes she didn't even want to have this other kid she didn't even want to. It's very interesting to me how the motherhood cult in the modern day places such an importance on everybody having kids and child rearing. But it's like Andrea still is like, well, I couldn't have a boy, though. I'd still throw a boy away. It's very interesting, isn't it? It is. Uh- um, because they just are so desperate for the numbers, I guess, for the kids. 
Well, and Andrea in particular really needed a daughter to be the next mother superior. But the it, but from from the 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 existence of the character boy, it is it is telegraphed very early on boy. that this cult does not care for care men. F- for men at all. I wanted to throw my arms around Maeve so many times and tell her you did the right thing. You did absolutely the best choice you had. You did not ruin anybody's life. You did not break up. You know, you are a hero. And what you did was heroic and insanely brave. Um, I loved a lot of things about Maeve. I was very, very attached to her. Um, I really care about her. A lot. And it's just so heartbreaking to see everybody in her life. Everybody. Sucks. Sucks. Everybody is... um, Up until the end. Then she gets a great partner. That is true. Her partner um, is totally fine. However, even... go through hell to get to him. Even the woman that she gave her twins up to for adoption was always part... Always part Always part of the conspiracy. Um, I did like the way she ensnared Andrea, too, by the way. I thought that was really brilliant. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A little cat and mouse game. Um, Let's talk about the dolls. Damn, I love the dolls. I love the dolls. There's not a lot of things in books that I specifically try to like block out of my mind being able to visualize when it's being described. This was one of those things. My brain is not able to handle this this uh uncanny valley yes. child. Okay, you know where I picture these kids? I picture them somewhere between a um a reborn doll, which are those, you know, very, very art- artfully, incredibly made, realistic looking baby and children dolls. And actually, and, and actually very, and very neat stories and reasons for oh, them as well. Yeah. But so they're fine. They're fine. You take them and then you run them through a blender with Renesme doll. Oh God. Yes. And this That's is these exactly kids. it. Yeah. It's Renesme. Oh, yeah. Um, and I can totally see how she got attached to hers and how it felt nice and like a comfort to have. Well, I mean, we have stuffies. We have stuffies. I have dolls. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, so I could see it. And that was just another way that I was like, Anne, could you get out of my head, please? Like, you know about my dolls? Um, the men in this book, for the most part, we have some great examples of, you know, her boyfriend was a good guy. Yeah. Um, and then you have the shitty, awful ones, the one who is using her to get money. Oh, that betrayal. Oh, and a- I knew that he was like in on it somehow, but he, he was, was cold, too perfect. Cold blooded. I knew it's like he knows all about about all of the authors that 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 she would secretly be interested Cause he had, in. Because like, he, he had like notes it on it. It just felt scripted. Yes. It felt like, okay, here's what I need to know for the conver- for this conversation. And okay, so now this worked. I'm going to have to step away for two weeks and yeah. do some more studying so that I can reach out again and I will still know what to talk about. And then there's, of course, Rob, who is, man, you talk about people having a punchable face. Rob is a punchable book character. Oh, man, I just wanted to hit him in the face with something. The worst. The worst. Asshole. And I I personally feel, in my opinion, that Maeve really takes her power back and gets sweet vengeance on Rob. And I felt very justified with that. 
Very satisfied. I did too. From and you know, from that point, from the point when um, you know, there's the 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 police warrant and she yeah. gets out of her shackles and this book takes a turn to almost a, a, a climactic uh crescendo. Did I think that we'd be like tying Maeve to a bed? By the, like the the crescendo of this, no, I did not. Did I think that that Maeve would be slitting throats? No, no I did not. Mm-mm. And I love that she did. I was was I expecting her to come into the foyer and see a bunch of expectant mothers and want to be mothers, uh, brutally murdering uh, police officers? No. I did not. It, it escalates. And it's almost like a it's almost like a release of all of this tension. It's like okay, everything's hit the fan. Um, it, you know, it's 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 one of the most quote unquote horrifying moments. It's like it's when things are just going the absolute worst, and yet mm-hmm. and yet it feels like a release. Yes, it feels like okay. Well, now everything is as bad as it can get, and of course. Mm-mm. Because it it's almost like it's almost like that's just that 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 moment of of uh, it's it's like a breath between the true paranoia. Because prior to that, the person that you are that you are watching, that you're looking at, that you're like, this is the this is the problem, is Andrea. Right. But now at this point you start to realize no, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's you can't everyone. trust anyone. Mm-mm. It broke my heart that her old boss and her friend oh, were, they sold out. Yeah, but you know what? A lot of people can be bought. It's just the truth, isn't it? Um, I also love the gloomy note that this book ends on because I do like a horror to end on a gloomy note. Mm-hmm. Um, I have faith in Maeve, and I have faith in her ability to kick this situation's ass. So I'm not tripping about Maeve. I'm not worried about Maeve. But I love to see her swallowed up by, even though I love her so much, I love to see her swallowed up by this conspiracy at the end of the book like that. It's very rewarding to me that it's like, damn, that's creepy. When I say rewarding, I mean because it's like, I want, I love a little one last scare. Yes, but the one last scares that that truly are... It's more okay. That's that's more than a one last scare. That's like okay. Um, well, you like for me, might as well just give up at this point. Like, there's that's you. There's no. There's just. There's no hope. Just. I'm not saying like okay. I guess I'm in the cult again. But yeah. But like, how do you fight anymore? Yeah. They they they've won at every turn. Oh, absolutely. Abandon all hope. But I just. Mm. I just think Maeve's going to come out on top of this somehow. I just think she'll figure it out. Um, One of my favorite scenes in the book was also the scene where we finally know what happened that night when she escaped. Um, That scene stood out to me as one of the best scenes I recall reading in a long time for just how it was written. Mm -hmm. We felt like we were so much in Maeve's head right then. Yes. It was really well written. It was powerful. It was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. But something else that I thought that was really powerful about that scene is we're going through so much of the book wondering, well, what happened that night? Oh, she just keeps you going with it. But by the time that comes, you all I already knew it doesn't matter what happened. Correct. 
it doesn't matter because it's not i mean there's there's almost definitely nothing that Maeve did wrong. She didn't. She didn't. And it's like, that's why I say I want to throw my arms around her. Yeah. And so, like, even if that scene never existed, it's, I mean, I'm glad it does because it was so well written, but it's, it, but it came at such a perfect point because, you know, a third of the way through the book, I'm throwing a number out there. I was like, I, what, what happened? What did she do? What did she, right. what did she do? And then, but she just tried to save their damn lives. It came perfectly and it was exactly what was necessary she had she she also broke andrea's heart at the same time i don't believe andrea that she never loved may mave i don't believe her i think that she did love mave in her way for a while as a kid yes as a well i mean (laughs) this all happened i mean but you know andrea when andrea was um was told what she was told that she was the next mother superior mm-hmm. was explained how important she was she was groomed to to manipulate Maeve yeah and i and and you know there was i'm sure there was there was affection that came from that but by the time that she was told how powerful she was right that whole scene where you know she's she's bloody mary and she's She's testing Maeve to if Maeve would so leave toxic. and manipulates Maeve from outside of the door after that. I don't. I, it's I, so fucking disgusting that she did all that to her. Mm-hmm. Because when we know that Andrea was in on it, it just it shatters your heart. I think that she was more surprised that she lost surprised that she did not have the control over Maeve that she thought she did. I don't right. think that she, her heart was broken. I thought that she was defeated. And then imagine being Andrea and you're spoiled and you're rotten and you're sec- set up to be Jesus of your cult. And then it all gets disbanded and you know that you're going to have to start from zero. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to like give her like, you know, empathy or anything, but you can imagine the anger, the drive, the resentment that would build up after all of those years. Because for her, it was all Maeve's fault. She destroyed everything. One last thing I want to touch on, and I'd like to speak first as somebody that this, um, you know, kind of, I want to show off what I've learned. Can I show off what I've learned? Yes. So there's Bring out the whiteboard and present to the class. We always talk about in a book where some character has been adopted. We always talk about that because we have an own voice on this show. Scott is was an adopted child. So one thing that I've learned from you talking about it is so we know that in real life and in fiction, sometimes people end up with families and parents that aren't aren't good from birth or from adoption and it makes you mad when it's assumed that every adopted parent is like the wrong choice Mm -hmm. um i think that her parents loved her very much but i'm so mad at them that they didn't let her address her trauma but how did you take this as an adoptive person Actually, I liked it a lot because Good. you 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 pointed out something very important, and um, like right from the get go, when Maeve is describing her parents as telling her to not think about the past, that that felt really icky, mm-hmm. and it's a mistake. They heard one doctor's opinion to not do it, and they just ran with it. At the same time, 
as the book progresses and you learn a little bit more about the experiences that she had with her adoptive parents, it's a more complicated than that. And it was a mistake. It wasn't necessarily perfect how they handled it, but it wasn't like it wasn't the fatal flaw and they were terrible parents because they were like overly optimistic about how she would handle not addressing the past Mm -hmm. and overly optimistic about how she would assimilate into society and and because no parents are perfect yeah parents make mistake and i don't feel that they were demonized because of that it was a mistake to be absolutely clear I don't think that it was necessarily the right choice, but they weren't evil people, but they weren't evil people and they were not very definitively. They were the reason that she was, she was as successful as she was not necessarily capitalistically, but, but you know, she was fulfilled in her job. They got her to live in this world. Yeah, did. And she loved them very much for that. And I really, and I, I actually really did like that. And there's something else that um, this is. There's something else that uh, in, in in return in in regards to adoption, I understand why uh, the parents weren't in the book in the present. I, I get that. Uh, I there's a part of me that kind of wishes that they were to balance with another point that I took from this book as. A child who is adopted. I have wonderful parents. Um, I have, you know, I'm relatively well adjusted, and any adjustment issues that I have are not because of the <laughs> fact that I'm adopted. Let's put it that way. Um, that said, um, when I met uh, my biological sister, mm-hmm. there is there is something that I criticized in books for and movies for a long time that actually clicked with me, and I understood for the first time, and it was. Oh, I've never seen someone who looks like me. Not really. Mm, mm-hmm. And so there's a very powerful, almost primal connection that... Um, her and Andrea could be twins. Exactly. Like, you know, she has her parents. She loves them. She has her friends, although she's not really good at connecting with people long term. And here, here walks in someone who looks like her. And wants to solve all her problems. I, you know, that, that is already a very powerful feeling that, uh, that is, is very easily weaponized by Andrea against her. Yeah. Uh, I love that Maeve loves her job, by the way. I think that's really cool. And I love that Maeve has, um, character art and growth in this book. Um, yeah, so many good things. I feel like we've got to give it our rating and put a bow on it here. I'm going to give this book five doll heads out of five. For me, 100% a contender for best book, favorite book of the year. This is five doll heads out of five. And I agree. This is uh, currently sitting in that on that top shelf right now for book of the year. Absolutely stellar. Thank you so much, Anne, for writing a book that we both felt such a deep, passionate connection with and a love. And it's also a lot of fun sometimes because being scared and thrilled and trying to figure out a mystery is a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you so much, Sandra. And thank you, everybody listening at home. Please keep reading past your bedtime. (laughs) 